Welcome back to today's podcast, Doing Tech Better in Government. I'm Brian Fox, and in this series, you'll be hearing from different technologists and technology leaders in government about their efforts to modernize digital capabilities. Together, we will learn about the technology, the processes, and cultural changes they've adopted to rapidly improve their digital services and hear about their experience leading this change in government. Hello, thank you all for joining us in today's Doing Tech Better in Government podcast. I'm Brian Fox, and I'm really glad to have Peter Burkholder with cloud.gov joining us today. Peter, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, yourself, and your role there at uh, cloud.gov? Well, let's see. How about if I start with a little about myself? I came into doing uh, systems administration and then web administration and then cloud uh, computing, originally starting as a geophysicist. And I was set off to do uh, field work in remote parts of the world. And here's your cluster of Sun or Linux-based microsystems and keep them running while you're while you're gathering data. And I found I had a knack for it. And I got a real boost out of being able to enable people to do their work in ways they never could before. Uh, one of the things that really gave me the bug was when we were living in South Africa and I got a whole bunch of repurposed uh, my Unix workstations that the mining companies didn't need anymore. And there were all these people from underprivileged backgrounds who were wanting to get into geophysics and mining because then they could make good livings. So I took all the broken bits apart, put them together, got them networked up and people could do geophysical analysis in a way they couldn't do before. So that was how I got um, into working in systems that essentially have me where I am today, which is thinking at scale about cloud computing. How do we enable people who are uh, coming without the resources they need, whether they're our customer agencies or the public that they're serving, to get them connected with the right resources. Now, the organization I'm at is, I'm in at General Services Administration within Technology Transformation Services with a group called cloud.gov, which you might guess runs cloud computing services. And we will talk more about cloud.gov um, as we go on, but that gives a little bit of, of context. And been a civil servant for six years and loving the, the people and the challenges and the nature of the work. Absolutely. And that is a really wonderful story as far as innovation, using some of the technology you had available to help people. Yeah, wonderful. Regarding agile methods, cloud-based capabilities, and DevSecOps methods and tools. Can you tell us about the use of DevOps tools and methods at cloud.gov? How are you using all that there? Yeah, so they come into play in a, in a couple different ways. I mean, the two most important distinctions are how we use DevOps and agile methods within our team, and then also how we enable that for the customers that agency customers are coming to cloud.gov. I'm going to bounce it back to you, Brian. What does DevOps mean to you, or should I use my own definition? <laughs> to me, gosh, we, we talked a lot about this back at ATNF, but for, for me, DevOps means there's a people process and technology component to it. On the people side, it's uh, a culture and maybe even some org structure where folks are integrated, focused on software products. So those stovepipes are, are broken down, maybe organizationally, but definitely a culture of breaking that down, that everyone's engaged and focused in on the delivery of that working software. 
from a process standpoint, I think using lean and agile methods to help facilitate that through. And then obviously having the, the tools available, being in the cloud, of course, and then all the potential tools an org or, or a team could, could use. But I've seen some interesting examples of folks in government that haven't made it to the cloud yet, but they're starting to do DevOps on-prem just because they're focused yeah. on integration, working together. So anyway, here's my thoughts. Yeah, and I will say also that I make no distinction between DevOps and DevSecOps. It's always been since the term was phrased, coined in 2009, about how do we get from idea to delivery from uh, in a way as securely and safely and responsibly as, as possible. And I still really go back to the acronym that I think John Willis and Ed Al came up with, uh, CALMS, Culture, Automation, Lean, Measurement, and Sharing. And as you said, I mean, culture is, is first among those because if you're not having a team that can work effectively together, then the other things don't really amount to much. Job one for me and my colleagues is maintaining a generative culture. Uh, this includes blameless retrospectives, bi-weekly team reflection time on our processes. What are we doing well? What are we doing not? Really specifically creating spaces where we give each other kudos and, and positive feedback for the things that we're doing well. And, um, and then also just making time to, to get to know each other. So that's something on the culture end. And then, you know, in terms of automation, uh, we lean very heavily into everything being in version control, everything being peer reviewed. We enforce that through the use of protected branches in, in Git and heavy reliance on a continuous integration and continuous deployment. Every team uses different, different tools because we happen to be, use open source Cloud Foundry, we also use open source uh, concourse as a, as a tool that we use, which is just to give people sort of a place to hang their hat when they're thinking about tools in play, not necessarily, not necessarily something recommended for teams that are using, um, I wouldn't recommend concourse for teams that are doing smaller application deploys, but since we're running multi-hundred virtual machines that teams can come to us and deploy their code, it, it does the job for us. On a day-to-day -day basis, um, we make all those changes through code, through a pull request review process. And these all follow a template to make sure there's always a security review by another team member who wasn't involved in actually proposing the change. And as well as um, automated tests being kicked off to make sure it passes uh, particular gates in terms of style and automated static security testing. So that's in terms of the automation that we use to for how we define our infrastructure, how we deploy and, and run it. And then we use a lot of tools to make sure that we're gathering data throughout the system, both using our cloud provider and also open source tools like uh, from Elasticsearch, like the Elk stack to gather all of our logs and our logs that our customers need, as well as other tools that provide metrics and alerting. So those are a few of the things we use on our team. Any questions or clarifications I should provide before I talk about what our, how we support DevOps for our clients and customers? You mentioned a lot as far as people process technology there. Is there anything that you'd want to share a capability or, or a process you started to help move the maturity needle at cloud.gov? Anything that helped improve things there that was exciting? 
that you'd want to share? Yeah, oh, it was because I, I tend to think a lot about what our, mm -hmm. our team does as opposed to specific to, to myself. But since I'm chiefly responsible for compliance, I've been making use of various tools that query our infrastructure with respect to certain specifications that we have for some of the controls that you need to satisfy in the NIST 853 standards. So instead of manually checking something simple like AC8, do you have the little warning that pops up that says this is a government system, it will be monitored, it's a, it's in a pipeline, and it just checks that our, if you're connecting to our machines various, various ways, that that little warning is, is there. It is one of those things that takes time to set up, and we're chipping away at automating more and more of those compliance checks. And the end goal there is to tie in with the uh, open security control assessment language that NIST is uh, coming up with to help automate developing and delivering documents like the uh, system security plans. And my colleagues at GSA have a great starter templates for applications that are in Rails or in Python Django that include a lot of those controls already in them. Um, I've contributed that, but I can't take a whole lot of credit for it. Should line up Ryan Ahern to come in and talk with you about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe, maybe that's a, a future podcast. And yeah, as always, there's I. We, we all have our individual uh, contributions, but it's rarely is it anything happening without the team effort. So absolutely, Peter. Um, otherwise, uh, how are y'all? You, you mentioned kind of the next step and what you're going to describe is how y'all are, are helping your uh, partners in government. Yeah, so cloud.gov came about because teams within, also within GSA, particularly at 18F, were looking for a way to meet the needs of the public with web applications, with the capabilities of our agencies we were working with, to say, how can we not focus on building out things like virtual private clouds and the details of virtual machines and all the details of networks, but replicate what was happening in the private sector saying, here's a block of code that has the logic for displaying a web page, getting input, storing it in a database, returning the results to the public, and then kicking off backend processes. So the uh, cloud.gov was built around 2016-2017 with, um, with the idea that you should be able to take your code, push it to the cloud, saying what language it's in, the cloud determines, um, saying what, that you need a database and perhaps a indexing system or a, a queue behind it and abstract away a lot of the provisioning of those services and the provisioning of, of the uh, containers for the code so that your code will be running in a fully patched container with HTTPS enabled, can automate the provisioning of certificates so you can get your um, site wired up with uh, agency.gov right there in the, in the domain name and letting teams focus on the problem that they're solving for the public and not get pulled away into the underlying infrastructure that is really not providing additional value to the American public. And that is what cloud.gov platform is built on. And so a lot of common sites that you use, uh, Federal Election Commission is, is, is one of that one of the people we've been working with for a long time, for example, runs largely on cloud.gov platform. And then there are also a lot of agencies that just need a static website. 
like, we're here, here's how to reach us, here's our phone number, here's a bunch of information about our, of our agency or particular program. And so we have a service that's called cloud.gov pages where people use version control in a very simple templated manner to make changes to their site. It uses the same kind of workflow that people are, as developers are familiar with in version control, but make those available to content developers to say, okay, here's the change, here's the preview, we approve it, and then it goes out, is served by content delivery network, so it's highly, highly available. And really getting some people who aren't necessarily traditional developers um, starting to think in a DevOps mindset, because it's all about small changes, pushed continually with review, and, and then with a version control backend, and no admin interface that could be um, potentially exploitable because everything is done through a version control review and approval process. So those are two main things we do at cloud.gov. It's cloud.gov platform and cloud.gov pages. And it would appear that providing something easy to update from a content management standpoint would really just help those government websites then stay secure, but also stay updated. Yeah. What, I think what the, is the impact you've seen, I guess, with, with your, I mean, with your uh, government partners? Yeah. Uh, I think the cloud.gov pages website um, at cloud.gov slash pages like, shows how many updates per day they, they push. We support like 137 different agencies now with, with this service. We're not necessarily high, high volume, and we only serve like a little less than 1% of the total traffic going to government, much as, most of which is postal service, if you go to uh, the USA.gov analytics site. So we're you know proud to enable lots of small agencies and small programs to, to get their work done. I'm not it's sure I answered your question. Yeah. yeah, no, no, you did. You did. It's wonderful to hear about the impact. It's important to hear the details. You know, how are we getting there? But then there, there's always yeah. that most important and, impact to government and the public. And I should point out something about the way um, cloud.gov platform works is that, well, to back up a little bit, I think mm -hmm. one of the most common exploits you hear about in the world of cloud computing is people putting things in a bucket, so to speak, and either they didn't secure it properly to begin with, or they changed the permissions on it. And later on, it turns out, oh, here's the list of all of our, our users and their home addresses or something. So in cloud.gov platform, if you need a storage bucket, you provision it, and you can either at that, at that point make it public or private, and you can't change it later. So you can't say, oh, I, I just need to open this up just for one minute to get these things and then close it back up again, because that's where disaster happens is when people forget to um, go back and change things. So it's very, very clear that what you're using is either storing things like images for the public or storing things that people have uploaded to you and keeping those private and not accessible uh, to the public web. So anytime you need a, a database or an indexing service, you provision that and it comes up um, harder to hardened to applicable standards. And so you can focus on focusing, solving problems in your domain and not so much at the infrastructure part. Absolutely allow them to focus in on core competencies, right? Their core mission. And That's the you, phrase you, I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to help. Uh, and you talk about making security easier, right? From your standpoint and then from cloud.gov standpoint. Is there anything else, Peter, about how you're using automation to improve security, security compliance, cybersecurity? There's, there's a lot 
lot of issues in that realm mm-hmm. and automation can help. What, what are you all doing to, to help? Yeah, so the, the, the thing that people tell you is to patch, patch, and patch. We vastly reduce the surface, so to speak, that a customer needs to concern themselves about patching. When you're running an application on cloud.gov, we are patching at least, you know, generally once a week, at least once every two weeks, the whole underlying operating system that your code and your container is, is running on. And we do that in a way that doesn't interrupt um, access to your application because we'll spin up the new virtual machine, spin up new con- copies of your code on top of it. When everything's healthy, then the traffic starts coming to your new container. You are definitely responsible for making sure that the code you're writing in Python, Ruby, Java, whatever, is following best practice and uh, that you've tested it. But when the packages that run that Ruby or Python or Java um, have an update to them, we email you saying, hey, you're running on a slightly outdated build pack, as they're called. When it's convenient to you, run these commands to update the code. Make sure you do it in your development environment first so that everything works. So the developers on your team get that email and it is still a customer responsibility, as we say, to do that update because it's your code that's going up to the newest version of Ruby, Python, Java, name, name the language. But we let you know when those kind of updates need to happen. Uh, related to that, just and you mentioned your partners and their involvement. Uh, with with patching and y'all's responsibility and how you're uh, taking much of the workload there. But Peter, how is cloud.gov with uh, documentation and has improved documentation related to security compliance? Is that helping you all and your partners better understand what's required as they prepare to onboard with you? Yeah, the cloud.gov site is built uh, largely to help our um, agency partners uh, understand how to use cloud.gov effectively and safely. Um, we don't try to replicate all of the open source documentation for the underlying Cloud Foundry service. We try to provide pointers to that. And so, so that's certainly there. What we also do is make it, this isn't about automation, but it's about the sharing and documentation side is share things that other cloud providers wouldn't do, that don't typically do because it's not in their interest to do it, but we share the basis of our incident response plan, our contingency plan, our configuration management plan. This is the plans for how we run cloud.gov. It has been useful for other cloud providers that are looking at, hey, maybe I'll go the FedRAMP route to understand how they might structure their documentation to go through that, that process. One thing we also share that um, agencies find useful when they're trying to decide what cloud provider to use is what's called the customer responsibility matrix. You can go ahead and we just make that open source available so you can understand what your responsibilities are gonna be on when you when you cl- come to cloud.gov. More specific to the way our, our customers will potentially run on cloud.gov, is that since other agencies have also adopted uh, the open source mindset that has been growing it in government, is that they open source the code that they run on cloud.gov, including some of the deployment examples. So 
in our documentation, we list as like we link to the application code that some of our customers have open sourced, you know, with their permission. And so you can see, oh, well, this is how um, e-regulations is running at a particular agency. This is how I set up my code, my database, the deployment descriptor files. I can learn from this. So there's a lot of sharing going on in terms of our customers and the community, ourselves in the community that uh, we think really helps build just better deployment of technology in general. Absolutely. It sounds like it. Um, related to DevOps and then what you all are allowing 130 some government agencies to do, how are they uh, sharing best practices between those agencies related to whether it's uh, just web development efforts, deploying to the, the cloud, DevOps, are, are folks well, able to do that as well? Yeah, well, I mean, Brian, we, we should talk more. I think there's just more in general to be done in terms of technologists within the government sharing how they work. Yeah. The, the thing we do in terms of the cloud.gov community is having a weekly office hours that's open to anyone to drop in. Um, oh, great. We will bring our engineers to answer that questions have, but it's really great when customers talk to each other. It's like, oh, I've had a similar problem. This is how we, we've taken care of it. You know, we talk about, it's like, you know, we'd love to have a cloud.gov conference sometime, developers conference, <laughs> but um, our, our team is small, but growing. So uh, maybe that's something we can look to in the future. Absolutely. Let's take that offline. Definitely. I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. Um, but related to the documentation and sharing of practices, ha have you noticed that that's sped up the onboarding process at all? Have you you seen it uh, get easier and faster for your partners? Interesting question. I, you know, talking about metrics, I wish I had better metrics on time to like launch to to ATO. I mean, I, I will just say that we're having a great uh, collaboration with. Department of Justice, the uh, Civil Rights Org, we completely rebuilt their website, including the ability to file when a uh, complaint, if you feel like your civil rights have been violated over the last few years, they're very quickly able to turn that around into an updated ADA, American with Disabilities Act website, which is just, it's just a beauty to behold now when you, when you go there. Um, it's like, wow, this feels like mid 21st century uh, website experience to find out, you know, how to accommodate people with disabilities, how what your rights are, and and how to um, con make contact with uh, with the Department of Justice around that. Absolutely, so it's got to be. They're certainly learning from them. Certainly learning from themselves as they get more experience on, on the platform. Absolutely, it's got to be fun to watch them iterate and things to improve that way to see that impact. It's what gets me up in the morning. Amen. Related to customer experience, uh, have you and or how have you all improved the customer experience here at cloud.gov? And this could include, you know, interaction with compliance, considering some of you know, your customers are fellow uh, government agencies. I mean, outside of just uh, finding better ways to build out a growing knowledge base of common problems we've heard, and it's like, well, you may have experienced this, try, try this out. So we're really trying to lean into the mandates that are developing from OMB and DHS around cybersecurity in particular, so that when it comes to something like uh, what's called M2131, a memo about how 
US government computer systems should be logging extensively for certain time periods and at a certain granularity in order to be able to support incident investigation or after the fact forensics. We're really leaning into how can we just that make, of it, make that available right out of the box for our customers. So if you're running an application on cloud.gov, basically any output from your application is just is logged. And then we make sure that it is sent to a logging system that meets the requirements from N2131 in terms of uh, time stamping, uh, redundancy, retention time, et cetera. As we as these mandates come out and, and are developed, we lean into those and just say, how can we continue to make that a service that's provided for the agency partners so as you say they can focus on core competencies and let us handle a lot of the underlying plan plumbing just uh, by default for them it's exciting stuff and exciting times I mean, it's got to be fun mm -hmm. to see y'all have that impact to help those agencies especially well, from a cyber it, yeah. and security standpoint yeah and it, it keeps us busy because they're coming down kind of fast and furious but it's right. uh, there's a lot of work to be done so we're happy to roll up our sleeves and do it and related to that peter are, are there any challenges that y'all face or or maybe face from a security standpoint cyber standpoint as you look to help those government agencies modernize i mean i wouldn't say there's anything in particular from a, a cybersecurity standpoint it's um you know mostly trying to reach people where they are in terms of their understanding of where technology is going next so that they can really make use of uh, the highest abstraction layer, such a lousy term, but the, the greatest level of reuse possible as they approach solving their technology problems. I mean, you, you know, if you're an agency, just because you sometimes need to move five tons of Gravel doesn't mean that every single vehicle you need to buy has to be capable of moving five tons of gravel. People need to adopt a, a multi-cloud approach. It's like sometimes you need the big cloud service provider. Sometimes you just need a two-door around the town thing, both because it's less expensive and because it's more nimble and, and go to places that, that your, uh, your multi-ton truck cannot. So it's... Um, educational process. It's great talking about it on, on things like this because people should stop thinking about computers and, and computing. And when you're still moving from a world that was very much focused on data centers to the cloud, it's too easy to think about a one-to-one -one, uh, mapping. And instead, what is it that these computers are providing? How do we provide that service or as we're looking at the next thing we're building, just focus on what the outcome should be and find the best service to, to meet that outcome. Absolutely. I love your, your analogy there for the five-ton dump truck versus a, a little uh, economical car. Both are wonderful for different purposes and, mm -hmm. and the opportunity for different services to meet uh, a host of different needs. Uh, anything else, Peter? This has just been wonderful catching back up with you and cloud.gov, hearing how things are continuing to uh, evolve and, yeah, and well, how you all are serving government. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that uh, you'd like to share? Come, come work with us, whether that's cloud.gov or TTS. Uh, it's always hard to get URLs into a podcast, but join.tts.gsa.gov is where we're listing currently available open positions and ones that may be upcoming. 
our talent team has been really great at, at ramping up in, here in 2023 to bring in folks to, to come join us. So there's that. If you're inside or outside of government, you can come work with us. If you're, uh, if you're in government and have a .gov email address, as you most likely do, you can come to cloud.gov and make a sandbox account for either trying out cloud.gov pages for websites or cloud.gov platform. You get a very small allotment of um, memory and disk, what's enough to spin up an application or a, a sample website, kick the tires and, and see how it works. And you can reach us at support.cloud.gov if you want to know more. Peter, absolutely. Thank you for sharing those uh, URLs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure appreciate your time. And for everyone who's joined, thank you so much. If you would like to participate uh, in doing tech better in government, feel free to reach out to me, brian.fox at omnifederal.com. Feel free to reach out and we'll uh, get you on the schedule. Would love to have you. Uh, thank you all again for joining. Sure appreciate it. Thank you again to Peter. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Doing Tech Better in Government. Don't hesitate to reach out if you'd like to be a part of a future podcast, as we'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion, and don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. See you next time, Doing Tech Better in Government.